would be grateful for what it is that Christ has accomplished for us. Lord, I pray that we would become more and more discerning students of the scriptures as we um, study things that are just out to uh, combat false doctrine, Lord, and help us to marvel at the intricacies and the sufficiency of your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, from the outset of this series, we have made a pretty concentrated effort to clarify what it is that separates biblical Christianity from cults, from heresies, from these uh, seemingly cousins to Christianity, but religions that ultimately have a false view about Jesus Christ. And so what the last three lessons we've spent talking about the gospel, how it is faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, three weeks ago now, we looked at um, how Jesus is fully God. Uh, last week, we were looking at how Jesus is a full and true human being. And in some ways, this has been kind of academic. We've been trying to be very theologically precise, looking at verse after verse after verse that defend these positions. Yes, Jesus is God. Jesus is man. For instance, we looked at um, Jesus is man last week, uh, and, and to deny this, as the ancient heresy of Docetism did, that said Jesus is just the appearance of a human, almost like he was a ghost or a spirit that just projected a human body. Uh, Muslims deny this as well. They think it's ridiculous, unfathomable, that God would become a human being. Well, to deny this, John says in 2 John 1, is pretty serious indeed. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. To deny the humanity of Jesus is not just, oh, you're a little off. You missed something here, but we'll still welcome you. No, John says, if you deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that is in the same spirit as the deceiver. That is from the spirit of the Antichrist. And so I hope that a couple of things have happened to you as a result of this study, for as maybe academic as it's been. First, I hope that you've been strengthened in your faith as you see the sufficiency of scripture in refuting heresy. Where maybe you've had a, an experience much like myself where someone has challenged you and said, hey, what about Jesus being the firstborn of creation? Does that not mean that he's a created being, and that through this study and through the overwhelming evidence of the scriptures you've seen, that argument holds no water. Jesus is unequivocally God. Satan is doing his best, even to this day, to try and water down the gospel, to try and infiltrate the church with these heresies, and I hope that you've seen that scripture alone can refute some of these false teachings. Secondly, and maybe the complement to point number one is that you have been personally equipped to combat false doctrine. 
much like the church fathers and early church history uh, were rooted and grounded in their faith and fought to defend these sacred truths of scripture, I hope that as we've considered, again, just a plethora of verses, you too have been like equipped to combat false doctrine. So when someone says to you that they're trusting in their good works to get them good favor with God, you can say, you've been saved by grace through faith, not of works. So that once someone challenges you on the nature of Christ and they say, I really don't think he was God or I don't think he was a human, you can point them to clear scriptures and say, listen, this is what scripture says about the matter. I realize that we've not had a whole lot of time in this series for questions or comments, so I wanted to open it up to you guys right now. Maybe you've had a question looming large in the back of your mind for a couple weeks now, but are there any questions or comments regarding what we have studied up to this point about the person of Christ, uh, salvation in general? All right, well, we will go into our study this morning, which, if you remember our opening slide that says the exalted Christ really is out to this morning, exalt Jesus. I don't have a specific heresy or cult in mind this morning that we're going to spend some time refuting. I really do want to worship Jesus Christ. And I alluded to this role of Christ last week when we were talking about his humanity. It's found in Hebrews chapter 2, where we read, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And today we are going to explore what it means that Jesus is our high priest. Now, if you would ask me, I don't know, last week, what it is that Jesus being our high priest accomplishes for us, what it is, I probably would have been a little bit fuzzy on the matter. Like, I know it's something good. I want to celebrate it. But articulating it, understanding what it is that Jesus does as our high priest, honestly, I would have struggled with explaining that to you. And perhaps you're sitting there in your seat and you're thinking, yeah, I'm, 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 I can agree with that. I, I've heard it talked about. I know that it's celebrated in scripture, but I'm a little bit unclear as to what it is and why it's significant that Jesus is called a high priest. I think in order to truly... In, appreciate, to truly understand the priesthood of Christ, we need to go all the way back to the beginning where the priesthood is introduced, and that's in the Old Testament, where we have a pretty robust description of the priesthood, and where we're going to spend a significant time this morning in examining the Old Testament priesthood. So who remembers, here's a question for you, who was the first priest of Israel. Aaron, yeah, and what tribe was Aaron from? Levi, yes, and God had, instead of giving Levi a allotment of land as their inheritance, God actually said something to the effect of, your inheritance is going to be me. And God intended that for the tribe of Levi, they would be 
the tribe through whom the priests would come, beginning with Aaron, the first priest. And we have kind of a strange introduction to the priesthood in Exodus 28. Uh, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. We know from chapter 21, he's getting the Ten Commandments. He goes up and down several times, but when God talks to him about the priesthood, rather than first telling him what it is that a priest does and how they're significant to the law, God actually tells him first what a priest would wear. And what makes this especially confusing for us to understand is that there are all sorts of words, even in the ESV, that don't mean a whole lot to us. Words like ephod, uh, carbuncle, uh, there's another one here, it's uh, filigree, and we're reading this description of the clothing and we're reading words like this and we're just like scratching our head like what in the world is going on here? Like this is supposed to be a modern translation and these are the kind of words that are being used to describe the clothing of the priest. But as we keep reading it, if we're careful students of the word, we'll keep seeing phrases like, wear this when you go into the presence of the Lord. Aaron must wear this clothing. And even though we don't probably can't visualize what it is that this clothing looks like, we certainly can make the conclusion that this clothing is a requirement for the priest to come into the presence of a holy God. And secondly, it's also there's a lot of symbolism attached to this clothing. For instance, I'll put a picture of it up here for you. This is a representation of what a priest would have looked like, what we would have read about in Exodus 28. And if you can see what's called the breastplate right there on his chest, you've got all these multicolored stones and they have inscribed on them the names of the tribes of Israel, 12 stones, 12 tribes. And Exodus 28 tells us that this is going to be worn as a remembrance for the Lord. Almost as if when this priest comes before the Lord, he is one man representing the 12 tribes. If you can see on his shoulders, he's got kind of shoulder pads there. On each of those shoulder pads is, again, six tribes on his left shoulder, six tribes on his right shoulder, again, for a remembrance for the Lord. Almost, again, as he, as he is like representing the people of Israel through the breastplate, through uh, the thing on his shoulders. He's got some bells on the bottom of his robe there. There is some speculation as to why those bells are there. Scripture doesn't give us any more than just saying that if he doesn't wear these bells, he stands at risk of dying. The clothing is very important, even down to the little bells that are attached at the bottom. Perhaps most interesting is this gold headband that he's wearing at the top of his head there. Maybe you can just make that out. There's a blue cord wrapped around his turban and a gold headband right at the front. And look what it is that the Bible says this headband signifies. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it holy to the Lord. It shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead that they may be accepted 
before the Lord. And from the clothing alone, we can begin to make a couple of observations about the priesthood. First of all, that a high priest had direct access to God. Of all the people of Israel, only the high priest could don this clothing and stand before a holy God. And secondly, the high priest is a representative of the people. I hope that was clear to you, even just through the clothing. He's got the 12 tribes on his chest. He's got the 12 tribes on his shoulders. He is representing the people before God. He's not going into the holy place just to have some small talk. No, he has an express purpose and reason for being there, like it's said of Aaron in the verse that I just showed you, he bears the guilt of the offerings on himself. He's coming on behalf of the people before God so that their offering might be accepted. And these roles of the priesthood are very, very necessary for the people of Israel. Because up to this point in the book of Exodus, we've read several instructions from God that go something like this. God sets a barrier around Mount Sinai and he tells the people, don't come any closer. He tells Moses that even if the people were to look at me, they could die. If they touch the mountain, they'll die. A little bit later, God actually invites Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders up to join him on the mountain, but God says, don't come near me. And from these instructions, we have this expectation put in place that sinful people cannot be in the presence of God. That creates a real problem for us because how can we ever be reconciled to God? How can that bridge, how can that gap ever be bridged if God says, don't come near me, don't touch the mountain, don't look at me for fear of death? But God in his kindness and in his goodness put this system in place in which one man could access God. In which one representative of the human race could actually stand in his presence and intercede for the people on their behalf. Offer sacrifices that would make atonement for their sins. So when we hear in the New Testament then that Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest, what should we be thinking? That Jesus does these very things. That Jesus has direct access to God. That he is a representative of us. And as we examine later scripture, as more is revealed to us about the priesthood, Exodus and Leviticus both say that it is the priest who oversees the sacrifices. And of the sacrifices, the most Frequent is the burnt offering. It happens every morning and every evening. And when, and when brought by an individual, the burnt offering made atonement for the sins of the people, but the person could not offer the sacrifice on their own. They needed a middleman. They needed an intermediary, someone who could offer the sacrifice for them, who could help them make atonement for their sins. Additionally, we see that the priest, it was his responsibility to teach the people about God, to uh, read the law to them, to communicate God's word to the people. The Lord speaking to Aaron says this in Leviticus chapter 10. He says, you are to teach the people of Israel 
all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So in short, we might say about the priesthood that they served as an intermediary between a holy God and sinful man. We might think of it as the glue that is keeping the whole law together. Without the priests, the law doesn't work. You have the priests bringing the people's offerings to God, and you have the priests communicating God's law to people. In the midst, in a system in which a holy God dwells in the midst of the people in the tabernacle, a priest is super necessary to make atonement for the sins of these people. God and man cannot coexist, and it's the priesthood which, in a way, enables that. For the people of Israel's sins to be covered over and over and over and over again, their role was vitally significant. It was an integral part of the Old Testament. And yet, the priesthood did not come without some deficiencies. Take, for instance, what we read in Leviticus chapter 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Just looking at this verse here, what is one of the deficiencies of the priesthood that you could identify? Craig. Yeah. The priest had to make atonement for himself, insinuating what? The priest himself was plagued by sin. Though he was the representative of the people, he too was enslaved to the sin that he was bringing the sacrifice for. Unfortunately, there is example after example after example in the Old Testament of priests who are plagued by the sin. I mean, think about it. As Moses is getting the law from God, the very man who is going to be appointed high priest is doing what down below? He's building a golden calf for people to worship. What we just read about a couple of priests in uh, our previous Sunday school series in Samuel, anyone remember? Who, who just totally tainted the priesthood? Who was it? Uh, I can't remember their names exactly, but Eli's sons. Okay. Yeah. Eli's sons, who were just totally perverting the sacrificial system, they were using their platform for immorality. Uh, by the time of Jeroboam, when he sets up the, again, golden calves in the north and the south of Israel, he just does away with the Levitical priesthood entirely and says, whoever wants to be a priest, go for it. In the time of Hosea, the priests have neglected their responsibility to teach the people about God, and God says, you are the reason, priests, that my people don't know me. You've not taught them about me. You've neglected your responsibility. And so on you comes condemnation. By the time of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we're reading that the priests are offering polluted sacrifices to God. They're offering sacrifices that God says, you wouldn't even offer these sacrifices to a human ruler. They're so marred, they're so deformed, you wouldn't give this to your governor, but you're going to offer this sacrifice to me? 
and God condemns them for that kind of behavior. They're perverting the priesthood, and so the overwhelming amount of evidence in the Old Testament should lead us to conclude the priesthood needs some reform. This is not all that God had intended it to be. Man has totally perverted the priesthood. That's not even the only deficiency of it. There's a second. In Leviticus chapter 16, we have the description of the Day of Atonement in which there were these two goats selected. One of the goats is slaughtered and his blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat and another goat is uh, symbolically all of the sins of the people are placed on this goat and he's cast off into the wilderness. I'm sure you guys are very, very familiar with that. The scapegoat, the Day of Atonement. But with this Day of Atonement came special instructions for Aaron. God says this. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. First of all, from this verse, we can tell God tells Aaron, you can't come in here whenever you want. In fact, if you do, you run the risk of death. These instructions get elaborated a little bit more for us at the end of Leviticus 16 when we read, And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all of their sins. How frequently could the high priest enter into the most holy place? Once a year. That was it. And after having, me just, after having heard me just describe the decline of the priesthood, where all of the sudden these priests aren't teaching the people about God, they're not offering worthy sacrifices. Imagine on the Day of Atonement, if you have a corrupt priest, someone who once a year gets to represent you, but you know your priest. He's not a God-fearer. He spends the other 364 days a year doing whatever he wants, abusing his power, his position, and your hope of forgiveness of sins rests in this guy who cares nothing for God, for his people, for his word. That's got to be pretty discouraging, huh? That's my representative. Once a year he gets to go before God. Again, we should be thinking there's some serious problems with the priesthood. There's a real deficiency here. We need something. We need someone better. This is where Jesus enters the equation. And there's one book in particular which champions the priesthood of Christ. Anyone want to take a guess as to which book we'll be turning to? Hebrews. Yes. Throughout, we have described for us how Jesus is a better priest. Now, we've said a couple of times already that the priestly system needed an overhaul, and the author of Hebrews agrees with this. And in his description of the priesthood of Christ... He actually has like all of these qualifications or these things which he draws attention to about what makes Jesus a better priest. The first of which, maybe one that we've not considered before, is his ancestry. 
Here's what I mean by that. According to the Mosaic law, Jesus could not legally be a priest. Anyone know why? Um, I think I heard it. Was he not from Levi? Jesus wasn't from Levi. He was from Judah. And yet he's called a priest, and so one of two things must have had to happen here. Either Jesus is breaking the law and wrongfully becoming a priest, even though he is from Judah, even though he's not a Levite, or what is the other alternative? Maybe I could phrase it this way for you. If Jesus cannot be a priest under the Mosaic law, then what needs to change? What needs to happen in order for Jesus to be rightfully called a priest? Jane said, be a new covenant. There needs to be a new law in which Jesus can be called a priest. That is the argumentation of Hebrews chapter 7. In this new law that Jesus inaugurates, priesthood is not determined by your ancestry, by being from the tribe of Levi, a descendant of Aaron. Priesthood is determined, as the scriptures say, by the nature of the fact that Jesus is eternal. Hebrews says specifically that because Jesus has an indestructible life, it qualifies him to be a priest. And the author identifies one other priest in the scriptures who had similar attributes as Jesus. Melchizedek. Yes, and although it, it compares Jesus and Melchizedek in that they both had uh, an indestructible life, in Melchizedek's sense, he didn't have mother or father or genealogy, um, let's see, like, like Jesus, Melchizedek also wasn't a Levite. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7 and just follow the flow of the author's argumentation here about Jesus and the priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7, the first 10 verses are spent describing how Melchizedek is a better high priest than the Levitical system. Look at verse 3. In its description of Melchizedek, it says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Some people read this and they think that Melchizedek is actually what we would call a pre-incarnate Christ, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. I'm more inclined to think that because of Melchizedek's just abrupt entrance into the scriptures and we never really hear or see from him again, he's not Jesus appearing in the Old Testament, but much like Jesus, there's no record of his having a beginning or an end kind of thing, and that's what the author is drawing attention to. He was a real person, but he appears to have no beginning or end, no genealogy. He kind of continued forever, so to speak, at least as scripture portrays it. But second, the author identifies in verses 4 and following that Abraham showed deference to Melchizedek by paying him tithes. And the author, the author even goes as far as to say that Levi, through Abraham, showed deference to Melchizedek. 
And so what we have then is Levi showing deference to another priest, the Levitical priest himself, the father of it at least, showing deference to the priest Melchizedek. And so what you have then is this order of Levi with Aaron and all of the priests underneath him as part of the Levitical system, and then the order of Melchizedek, which consists of Melchizedek and one other person, Jesus Christ, who is a priest not by nature of his ancestry, but by nature of him having an indestructible life. And verse 11 tells us another deficiency of the priesthood, where we read that now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. Quite simply, what the author is making the point here in verse 11, it's in that first phrase, perfection is not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. The outcome of the, Levi of the Levitical priesthood was not this exalted, righteous state of mankind where we just continually get better and better and eventually we attain perfection and true righteousness. No, unfortunately, the opposite is true. And we've observed that even in the priests themselves, they get worse and worse and worse. If it were possible to attain perfection, the author says, then what need would we have for Christ? This is something that we've considered even recently in 2 Corinthians, where we considered that the old covenant, the law is called the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, Rather than bringing life, it brings death because no one can keep it. Look at how the Old Covenant is referred to in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because what? It's weak and useless. And you may have noticed that something a little bit bigger is going on here than just talking about the priesthood of Christ. The author is talking about more generally what? the covenants that these priests mediate. He's using his description of Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood and Christ's priesthood to say that Jesus is inaugurating a better covenant, a new law. And as, our, as we've already considered, look at verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And so when Jesus, this new priest, comes, he brings with him a new law. And this is great news because verse 19 tells us that the law made nothing perfect. Something we already knew. But, verse 19 goes on to say, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And this priest was promised in the Old Testament. Look at verse 21. This one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The author here is quoting Psalm 110, talking about Jesus, this eternal priest, this inaugurator of a new covenant, he is on the horizon. Look what the author concludes in verse 22. 
this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The high priest and this covenant that have been hinted at in the Old Testament, since the time of the Psalms, probably even further, since the time of 1 Samuel, when God tells Eli that another priest is coming. He's here. And it's his arrival that makes him, or guarantees, that a new and better covenant is being introduced, one in which we have hope. The author has just done a roll here in Hebrews chapter 7, listing attribute after attribute after attribute of what makes Jesus so awesome. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. The Levitical priesthood had a shelf life, an expiration date. You were only a priest for as long as you were alive. But what qualifies Jesus for the priesthood is his indestructible life. Verse 24 puts it this way, but he holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. And then we come to this glorious verse, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because Jesus is an eternal high priest, his intercessory work never ends. It continues forever. Remember the high priests of the Levitical priesthood? We considered this already. Got to come in once a year and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. The eternal, precious blood of Jesus Christ outshines the glory of the Levitical priesthood and that it is permanent. Jesus' intercessory work is unique in that he is both priest and sacrifice. And he is eternally making intercession with his own blood before the Father. Hebrews 13, later on in this very book, goes on to call Jesus' sacrifice the blood of the eternal covenant. There is no fear of this covenant, the new one, ever coming to an end. Jesus doesn't die. His blood doesn't lose its effectiveness. It's permanent. It continues forever. This is great news. Let's read verses 26 and following. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Again, the author is drawing attention to the very thing that we considered, that the priests of old had to offer sacrifices for their sins. They, too, were sinners. But we have a high priest described as holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. 
And his sacrifice, I love how verse, tw verse 27 puts it, his sacrifice was once for all. It's sufficient to cover our sins. It is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And while the priests of old were priests by nature of the law, by nature of their ancestry, their heritage, Jesus is a priest because he has been appointed a priest by the promise of God who has made his perfect son our high priest. Hebrews isn't done talking about this. I want us to just scan the following chapters and make a couple of observations that we can see about Jesus, our high priest. So chapter 8 talks about this as well. Look at verses 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Again, we have this idea that Jesus' priesthood is connected to his introduction of a new covenant. They're inseparable. When you think Jesus, our high priest, think he mediates a new covenant, one which the author describes is better than the old. In fact, look at verse 13, this old covenant, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. The first 10 verses here talk about the old priesthood. You can just scan that and see some language that jumps out at you. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. I'm seeing about the lampstand, the bread of presence, the holy place, the altar of incense. I mean, we're looking, verse 6, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. We're reading here about a summary of what the priests would do in the Old Testament. And then we come to verse 11. We read, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered, here's our word again, once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if, the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Thus, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Do you see how the author is arguing here? In old days, you were dependent on the blood of bulls and goats to cleanse you. And it had to be done over and over and over again. And you should be thinking, we need a better system than this. This doesn't really work. It's not permanent. And yet Jesus enters the scene as both our high priest and the perfect sacrifice. And the author says, how much more will the, will the precious blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus' sacrifice is better. 
Look at verses 24 and 28. We'll read those really quickly. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, we have captured for us here this awesome truth that Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. And where other priests could only go in once a year, Jesus is said to be seated in the presence of God. His priesthood is eternal. It's not sporadic. Once a year, he's there in the presence of God. I know we've hurried through some of these passages of scripture here. Take some time to go back and reread them. Marvel at the priesthood of Christ, but I hope you're getting a little taste of why it is that Jesus is the better high priest. In a very real way, the law of the Old Testament, the priests of the Old Testament, were pointing our focus towards something better. Everything that the priests of the Old Testament did in having access to God and being our representative, Jesus does, but he does it better. He does it perfectly. So some final thoughts then. Why is it important that Jesus is our high priest? I would say, just having studied this out this week, as I've said already, that Jesus' priesthood is just integrally connected with the new covenant that he introduces. And so when we think Jesus is a priest, we should think of a new covenant that now reigns forever. And in this new covenant, our priest, much like the priests of old, brings a sacrifice, but that sacrifice is himself, and it is the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which guarantees the atonement and the forgiveness of our sins before the Father. You think Jesus is a priest? Think immediately of a new and better We should be incredibly grateful that our standing, our position before God, no longer hinges on a fallen human being to represent us. But there is a perfect human being, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has gone before us, who is our representative before the Father. Let me just end with a couple of thoughts, a couple of verses we'll look at. Hebrews chapter 4. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this is where the teaching of the humanity of Christ intersects with the teaching about the priesthood of Christ. Our representative knows what it is, according to this verse, to be tempted. The man who represents us has experienced the very temptations that we have. He knows what it is to be one of us because he is one of us. Our struggles are not foreign to him. He doesn't have to guess as to what it's like to bear some of these burdens in life, to be bombarded by temptation, to just be overwhelmed by some of the temptations we face. Jesus knows these things. Our high priest has experienced these things, and because of that, the verse says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive the appropriate mercy and grace in our time of need. Because Jesus has experienced these things, run to him. He knows our high priest is one of us. And I'll close with this verse from 1 Timothy that we considered last week. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. We have a human high priest to this day, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for uh, letting us see from the whole of the scriptures how Jesus is better, how his arrival onto the scene of human history has inaugurated a new covenant that he mediates as our high priest, one in which our standing before you does not hinge on uh, the blood of bulls and goats, but on the blood of your precious son. Thank you for sending him, Lord. Thank you for the salvation that we find in Christ. And it's in his name we pray.